Welcome to the Seamland podcast. I'm your host Seamland and today our guest is Megan Ramos. Megan is the co-founder of The Fasting Method with Dr. Jason Fung. She's also written books with Dr. Fung about intermittent fasting and helping diabetes. This episode is brought to you by the Metabolic Autophagy Masterclass. It's the most comprehensive and in-depth program about applying the benefits of intermittent fasting and metabolic flexibility for both longevity and body composition. You get access to over 13 hours of video content about the science of autophagy as well as a four-week meal plan and workout routine with precise macros and food recommendations. Head over to seamlund.com forward slash masterclass in one word and use the code POD20 for a sweet 20% discount. All right. Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, we're doing this uh, podcast and uh, we're actually doing it live with uh, Megan Ramos uh, from uh, California. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad to have you back on the podcast. Like, we first did our first show, uh, like it was yeah like you said maybe like a few years ago and uh yes a lot of us a lot of has happened ever since so how are you i'm doing well thank you i'm yeah i'm in sunny california now i was in toronto last time we talked so a lot has happened in the last few years <laughs> yeah that's for sure um but yeah maybe let's uh, start about your like backstory uh, like uh, how did you get into the world of uh, fasting and uh, what have you been like researching yeah, absolutely. Um, when I was young, I was really skinny, but I had these diseases of obesity. At 12, I was diagnosed with fatty liver, and at 14, I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome. And my doctors just told my parents, you know, like, that doesn't make sense. Like, she's really skinny. She'll just grow out of it. That, that was their great medical explanation. Um, simultaneously, like, my mother was really sick with some unique genetic conditions that I do I believe were caused by a moldy house that she lived in, in hindsight, but uh, she was a real medical mystery. So I got really into medical research and preventative medicine because of my mother's medical history. So at the age of 15, I started doing research in this nephrology, which is a study of kidney disease clinic. And I was working with this young nephrologist, Jason Fung. And I just love nephrology. I love the clinic's focus on preventative medicine. There were a lot of lifestyle interventions. Unfortunately, you know, they're all the wrong ones. But I, at the time, I appreciated them trying to do something other than here's a bunch of medications. Let's go on dialysis. Like there was some actual people trying to be preventative, which is rare in traditional medicine. So I stuck around there throughout all my education. And then I continued working there when I was done with school, uh, working on prospective research uh, with diabetic kidney disease, looking at what interventions would actually slow down the progression of uh, diabetic related kidney disease. And uh, like nothing, like the diabetes got worse. There was nothing you could do as a kidney with the kidneys. And it just seemed that all of the interventions for type 2 diabetes just made the diabetes worse. So I actually got really frustrated, took some time off from going back to school, still worked in the nephrology uh, clinic doing my research, but I thought maybe I'll go to law school or something. And, you know, just thinking about how depressing it was just to watch all these people die from type 2 diabetes. And then I said to myself, okay, Megan, like you got this huge like hugely terrifying family history of cardiovascular disease, dementia, Parkinson's, all like you name it, 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 I've got it in my family history. So take this year while you're figuring out what you want to do with your life and get your health on track. So I started to force myself to eat like several times throughout the day, even when I wasn't hungry, eat all of these healthy whole grains, all of these fruits. And well, 
18 months later, I was a type two diabetic and I was 80 pounds overweight. So um, traditionally I, I, I had experienced what exactly what the patients had experienced. Keep doing these interventions, everybody. And oh, wait, your diabetes is just getting worse and you're becoming more obese and your kidneys are failing even more. So Jason Fung, he was researching fasting at the same time because he was getting frustrated. Like all we're doing is watching people die left, right and center. And, and like there was no space to dialyze people anymore. You know, we went from not having many patients that needed dialysis to di like dialyzing thousands of people 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it was all due to diabetes and obesity. And so Jason had actually become really interested in fasting uh, through sort of more of a social conversation that he had with a friend. And he talked to me about it. And I was struggling so much with eating. Like I wasn't a cook. I was too sick to even want to cook. Like I barely had enough energy to order pizza, um, like let alone try to reinvent my whole diet when I was never taught cooking skills because I was that sick. So it was just easier not to eat. And within six months of starting to fast, I reversed not just the type two diabetes, like I brought my A1C down to 4.6. I lost all of the fat, but I also reversed the fatty liver disease and the polycystic ovarian disease that didn't go away as I became older. So in hindsight, in my youth, I was a tofi. I was thin on the outside, but I was fat on the inside. And then I became fat both on the inside and the outside in, in my mid twenties. But I was fortunate, you know, by the time I was uh, you know, 28 years old, I had control of my health. And that's how we actually got into fasting patients. Um, you know, our, our colleagues in the nephrology department were really impressed with my results. And the fact that I didn't waste away from fasting, in fact, I got better and stronger. Uh, so we started fasting patients in the clinic, our clinic exploded, we started doing consulting online. Um, and we really have built out the online program, which has been great to enable us to help so many people during the COVID pandemic as well. Oh, yeah, that's a really good overview of your story. And uh, yeah, it's really fascinating to hear that um, how, let's say, the, these, all these uh, conventional uh, approaches didn't like really work for you and you had to kind of find uh, a way to kind of make it work and uh, yeah like to kind of lead you into this <laughs> whole new world uh, of different different way of looking at uh, the disease and uh, yeah actually treating it also like slightly differently yeah it's it's pretty crazy i do a sanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results and i personally experienced that i was watching all these patients fail trying to eat all of this food and eat all day long and um and then I tried it and then it totally failed, failed me. And it's just like, oh, okay, like conventional approaches to this is just, it's mind boggling um, it, how backwards it is. Hmm. Yeah. And um, now like you've also written a book with uh, Dr. Funk. Yes. Uh, we co-authored Life in the Fasting Lane with our good friend, Eve Mayer. Eve's a hilarious woman from Dallas, Texas. Uh, she's a, uh, very spirited uh, woman, very successful woman. Uh, she, you know, has been on Forbes, you know, top list of female digital marketers. She's made multi-million dollar companies. She's succeeded and excelled at everything she's done in life, except for weight loss. Uh, she has struggled with, uh, with her body fat percentage for the majority of her life. 
and you know, she's a resourceful woman. So she's, you know, she's gone to retreats. She's had uh, multiple uh, weight loss surgeries, uh, supplements. Like she spent hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to lose weight and pretty much failed at everything. Um, and someone actually gave her a copy of Jason's uh, first book, The Beastie Code. And she actually started to fast just to prove that it wouldn't work. Uh, she thought it was ridiculous, but uh, <laughs> it wasn't ridiculous. And she ended up losing a lot of weight and uh, benefiting from that, from a, both an emotional and a physical perspective. So she actually flew to Toronto to meet Jason and I, tell us her story. It was just kind of mind blowing, everything that she had been through to try to lose weight and just how easy it was when she started fasting. So she's a wonderful person, wonderful story. So we wanted to share her journey. And in our book, Life in the Fasting Lane, it's um, Eve's story is intertwined with Jason and I explaining the science behind fasting and the actual practical steps in implementing fasting into your lifestyle. So you get a bit, you get this personal story. It's extremely relatable um, to men and women. And then you get the science behind why what she did didn't work, why calories in, calories out didn't work, why uh, on it, so why gastric bypass surgery didn't work, why all these supplements didn't work, and why fasting did. And then we get the, the implementation of actually how you can how you can do it and how you've succeeded at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what do you maybe like one of the biggest reasons uh, why does it work and why do so many people like actually see results from it? I think it's actually like fasting actually breaks the cycle of insulin resistance. And we're living in a day and age where everybody's walking around with insulin resistance and people often will go low carb or they'll do ketogenic diets. And by doing so, you're not adding more insulin to the system through your, your, your nutritional means, which is great. But if you have insulin resistance itself, insulin resistance drives your body to produce more insulin. So, you know, what we see is a lot of people going on these low carb and ketogenic diets. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of cycling in and out of keto myself. Um, so we see people doing these diets and they'll lose like 50 of that 80 pounds, but they can't lose that last 30 or they'll get their hemoglobin. They'll come off their diabetic medication and we'll get their hemoglobin A1C to 6.4, but why can't they get it to like five? It, like where it's optimal, more optimal anyways, why can't they get it there? And it's because their body's still in some resistance and the diet doesn't necessarily address that in many cases because we are in such an insulin resistant population. So fasting really helps break the cycle of insulin resistance. And then you have to keep in mind too, we develop insulin resistance by two pathways, right? The, you know, the first one being, uh, you know, having this toxic overload of insulin in our system. So yes, eating processed and refined sugars, especially the way the standard North American diet promotes them, um, you're adding a toxic burden of a toxic load of insulin to your system. But we also develop insulin resistance by sort of a secondary pathway, and that's just the chronic stimulus of insulin. 
So, you know, a lot of the times too, people are just eating a little bit here, a little bit there, and it's real foods, it's nuts, it's cheese, it's olives, but there's still that bit of insulin secretion. And when we cut out snacking, like that's a game changer, you know, so there are benefits of doing an extended fast. I just wrapped up an ex my, you know, quarterly extended fast myself, but, um, what I've seen in the clinic is the power of just not snacking and how incredible that is actually reversing insulin resistance and helping people regain control of their health. A lot of the dialysis patients that we did work with, they can't fast for longer periods of time. I mean, their kidneys are completely shot. Um, electrolyte imbalances, fluid imbalances, like it's, it's a lot to manage medically. But we can definitely fast them for 24 hours. That, that's not a problem. Um, so with these patients, like we've been able to replicate the same results of people doing longer fasts um, on their eating days by really cutting out that snacking and just having meals, just going back to you know how our grandparents or great-grandparents ate growing up with just the meals and not snacking. And they're only doing 24 hours of fasting, but in six weeks, they're still coming off of insulin. And these are people that are actually being flooded with sugar during all of their dialysis treatments. In six weeks, they're still coming off of insulin. In six weeks, their, their markers are getting better. Their glucose control is getting better. And they're not doing any excessive lengths of fasting. So it just goes to show how, you know, even the, the chronic secretion of insulin, even if it's a little bit, it's, but a little bit all day long adds up to a lot and how that is problematic as well. Right. Yeah, so it's almost like this, um, the result of uh, like just over overeating and uh, excessive nutrition, which is what, what is, you know, what is causing this insulin resistance that the body usually becomes this insulin resistant, when it's uh, like, you know, either producing too much insulin all the time, or it's in the case of like type one diabetes, then you're not like not producing enough insulin. Yeah. So uh, yeah, is, 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 a, is a, like, well, what? Like, what would be like some good um, things to look out for, like for people uh, in terms of uh, whether or not they have this uh, insulin resistance? Yeah, so I mean, if people are walking around the street, especially here in the United States, I bet more more of my dollars than not that people are walking around with insulin resistance. Dr. Nadir Ali, he's a cardiologist from Houston that works with us, and and he once you know asked me about polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is a form of insulin resistance. And I believe in today's day and age, if you're a woman, you have PCOS until you're proven not. And that's just an unfortunate product of the environment and the nutritional guidelines that we have now. But one of the things, you know, there's certain lab markers that you can look at, especially your HDL to triglyceride ratio. You definitely want to make sure that that's over one. If it's under one, then that's a big flag that there's insulin resistance. But even then clinically, like I've seen a lot of people that are still very insulin resistant, that when they change their diet and they start practicing intermittent fasting, can see all of these blood markers move in an ideal direction. So, you know, on paper, they don't necessarily look insulin resistant, but how we know they are is that they just are having an abnormal response to glucose. So sometimes with the patients that I work with, you know, they'll be 
14 hours fasted or so, I'll ask them to eat uh, like something like a potato completely naked uh, in the sense that they're not, <laughs> they're not naked, but not eating it with any fiber, protein, fat, vinegar, just eating the starch on its own and taking in about 70 to 100 grams of, of carb and then seeing how high their blood sugar levels go and how long do they stay high. And ideally that you would check your blood sugar levels at the start and within two hours later, your blood sugar levels would be back to normal. So it's inadvertently doing sort of an oral glucose tolerance test at home. And um, we would encourage people to do this you know, every three or four months so they can actually see that progress. Because a lot of the times, you know, six months into eating real foods, prioritizing healthy fats, getting an adequate protein, fasting, we see all of their blood markers on, on their lab work uh, improve quite dramatically anyways. So we'll replicate this test. I mean, in an ideal world to test insulin um, resistance, we would do a craft test, which is the, it's similar to oral glucose tolerance test, but instead of measuring the glucose curve uh, for two hours after someone consumes sugar, you would measure the insulin curve for two hours after someone consumes sugar. But it's very difficult to order that. There's a lot of politics and regulations depending on where you are. Um, you know, we could do it a bit in Toronto, but provinces like Quebec, you could never do that. Like it, there are too many restrictions. So it's, um, it's just easier to experiment with starch at home. So that's usually what we encourage people to, to do. Mm. Yeah, like you, like in the vast majority of cases, like if you're already, let's say, obese and uh, you have like the symptoms of diabetes, then you are probably uh, insulin resistant as well. Uh, but uh, but like you said, you there is also this uh, scenario where you can be thin, like a thin on the outside, but like fat on the inside. So maybe again, you explain what what is that. Yeah, so all of this organ fat that we have, you know, our livers can be obese, our pancreas can be obese. Uh, we can have fatty spleens. The first time I ever saw a fatty spleen on a CT result, I thought it was a typo. Like it was really bizarre, but our organs can actually develop, that can have fat around it and infiltrating inside of it. And this causes a lot of disease because the, the hormone is so fatty. If the liver has so much fat in it and around it, well, it can't function properly. It can't do its job properly. It can't communicate with other endocrine glands properly, like it's, or, or, or other organ systems, like it is broken. And, and that leads to a lot of disease. And this fat is actually quite dangerous. You can have subcutaneous fat, and then you can have visceral fat. And subcutaneous fat is that fat that sort of sits, you know, uh, below your like your your skin and uh, between your skin and your abdominal lining and that fat is usually unsightly over time yes it, it can be problematic but it doesn't really interfere with your organs very much um, but when you get that visceral fat that fat that's in and around your organs well that's when you actually see the organs not be able to work properly or communicate properly with the body so this becomes really problematic so we'll see a lot of slender patients with severe type two diabetes and they don't understand because they, they're not like, oh, they don't have that beer belly, for example, that North American beer belly. And I'll say, but your, your liver has that beer belly. Your pancreas has that beer belly. Like these, 
these glands are over or these organs are overweight and they're not able to function properly and then we'll assess their body composition and i i have been 97 pounds in my life and i have been 34 percent body fat so for a woman that's obese so you know we'll go through i mean the goal is not to get them down to some like teeny tiny weight i weigh 120 pounds today and i have like 23 percent body fat it's much healthier than than i was uh, at 97 pounds and i wear a smaller size clothes so you know with the thin patients we'll really try to educate them on their body composition and say just because you weigh very little doesn't mean that you're healthy so in these instances, these people usually have also little bone, uh, like little muscle mass or lean mass in general. And they do have a lot of fat mass. That fat mass is just all in their organs. Yeah, yeah. Like this visceral fat is very uh, like bad for you. It's much, wor much worse than the subcutaneous fat. And uh, you can be like actually metabolically quite healthy and still you know, have this high amounts of sub subcutaneous fat. But if you even have like a like a little bit of extra or unnecessary amount of uh, visceral fat, then chances are you're more likely to have these, um, you know, bad outcomes like insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome. Um, and I believe like there's also like this, everyone has their uh, different thresholds of uh, how much uh, visceral fat they can accumulate before they get uh, diseased and uh, before they get sick. So like different, like, like, you know, um, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, then Asian people have a very low threshold for that. So they get uh, sick much faster compared to, let's say, uh, white, white people or black people uh, because of their genetics. And uh, they kind of can't get really obese. They're going to get uh, sick first. Whereas uh, someone like uh, like, a, like a black person or a white person, they can they can get like really obese before they eventually get sick. But, you know, eventually they will still, still get sick if they gather too much of this uh, visual event. Yeah, the personal fat threshold um, too, which I think is a concept that not many people talk about, nor are many healthcare practitioners very knowledge knowledgeable about. So I think society has got it very wrong in the sense that you know you must be visually obese to be at risk of disease, when it's truly like the these more slender people, these tofies, those individuals that are thin on the outside and fat on the inside, they're at a risk of much more like severe, severe disease. Um, and just due to genetics and our personal fat, fat thresholds, it, they, yeah, certain populations are much more at, at risk for, for developing this visceral fat. Hmm. And like, um, you know, fasting is one way of um, helping with that or treating it. Uh, what are some other ways that you do use in in uh, your practice? Yeah, so we we well focus on a lower carbohydrate diet. Um, in the cases too of uh, fatty liver, we will really try to reduce fructose intake. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to be eliminated, but consuming more but uh, more berries rather than like mangoes, for example, or orange juice, cutting all of that out. Um, so we do fasting, we do lower carbohydrate diets, we'll do ketogenic diets. Um, in some cases with certain patients, we'll do cycles of carnivore diets. Um, every now and then there's certain, we find that some people uh, 
sort of genetically don't perhaps do so well on fat uh, and then their mitochondria has just been so beaten up from their health issues and their previous lifestyles that they do benefit more on a plant-based diet uh, as well. So we really look at the individual, the individual's uh, the physiology, biochemistry, and try to find a real food dietary approach that's lower in carbohydrate and ketogenic diets. When someone comes to us with insulin resistance, we do pursue more of the low carb ketogenic side of things based on whether it's more plant-based, omnivore, uh, carnivore based for them at the time. The goal is to eventually bring them to a point where they're healthy enough, they can do more of an omnivore diet uh, and that they can have some metabolic flexibility where they can consume uh, starch, for example, and do carb cycling so they can get out of ketosis periodically as well. So we'll do carb cycling with tubers uh, when someone does get to a healthier metabolic state and has also worked out some of the more emotional uh, issues that they have with food, stress eating, comfort foods, those types of uh, uh, sugar, uh, more addiction kind of issues. And then we'll start to carb cycle individuals as well once they, they get to a healthier place. Mm. So yeah, you are, let's say, just using the keto as a way to get the results faster or to uh, give your body ability to let's say start treating with the insulin resistance um, faster and then after your body has kind of you know repaired itself to a certain point then you can start to reintroduce them so like the the goal isn't shouldn't be like to be like restrictive for the rest of your life <laughs> to the goal should be to be, be still uh, metabolically flexible it's just that when you're like sick or damaged then it's um like uh, you know pouring gasoline on the fire isn't going to make it worse, isn't going to make it better. So you have to kind of put the fire out first uh, before you can start again. Yeah, we have a lot of people, like it wasn't uncommon to see people on three to 500 units of insulin a day. Uh, and in addition to oral diabetic medications as well, like how that has become more normal in North America is pretty alarming. So that like that's a huge fire. Like that is uh, like a massive, massive fire. So you know when people have that severe insulin resistance, yeah, you, you definitely want to try to put out the fire as much as possible. But then you know allow for certain things like starches to be reintroduced into the diet more periodically and keep that intermittency. I think there's great benefit. To, it's funny, I do intermittent fasting, and you see the benefit from that. But there's great benefits. I think that extend far and wide to doing everything intermittently women will know if you use the same shampoo all of the time like it doesn't work it's better to use it intermittently with another shampoo and it's funny just how this principle applies like to so many aspects of, of life where you get benefit but the same thing with nutrition like well there's great benefits for being in a, a deeper and a more moderate state of nutritional ketosis it's also you know can be beneficial to cycle out of it sometimes so we try to just look at this whole balance approach uh, per the individual uh, when it comes to fasting and their nutritional side of things as well. And once, when you have that sort of flexibility, it does make it easier to, like, to proceed in life, you know, especially if you're in family units and people aren't eating the same way as, as you or, or households with, with friends or other loved ones, it just, I don't know, it just makes things a little bit more um, sustainable to, to get to a healthy spot where you can have some sensible flexibility. 
Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. And it makes sense uh, from that. So, um, yeah, like eventually, you know, being chronically in ketosis can also be harmful or like, you know, fasting for too long, everything can be harmful and changing it up is uh, where like, usually you can break some of these plateaus and prevent all the negative side effects. Uh, yeah. But how, how fast like, can, can people expect to, let's say, see, see results uh, in terms of uh, insulin resistance? Like, um, uh, w when is, uh, what is the kind of timeline for, let's say, someone who is like, let's say, freshly diagnosed with insulin resistance and how, how long do you have to kind of follow these guidelines before they can start expect to get better? Yeah, so I'd say if someone was just recently diagnosed uh, with insulin resistance, not on diabetic medications or anything like that yet, no major fertility, like massive fertility issues, like they've been, you know, PCOS has been blocking them for several years for starting a family, um, no liver failure is not on the horizon, um, just sort of more mild, uh, like within three months. Uh, I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible. Now we're doing more therapeutic levels of fasting uh, within our program. So in the sense that uh, 14, 16 and 18 hours of fasting are great, well-structured eating days. To, to us, they're not necessarily a fasting protocol. That's just common sense. So people shouldn't be eating more than that on, on an eating day. And there should be at least that much fasting happening on a consistent basis. So when we're treating insulin resistance, we're doing more alternate daily fasting, 24, 36, 42 hours of fasting, um, two to three times a week, in addition to people having well-structured eating days where they're still getting in 16 to 18 hours of fasting a day. Um, so we, we're doing longer fasting and you know every quarterly or when necessary, we'll do an extended fast as well, depending on the person's uh, degree of insulin resistance. But someone coming in, mild, mild insulin resistance, newly diagnosed, we start off with you know, three 24-hour fasts a week, um, cutting out some of the refined and processed sugar. And within three months, you should see dramatic blood test results. Okay, yeah, yeah. Like, um, would the like, longer fasts be uh, required to do? Like, or are they just like a shortcut uh, that do you need to do them? Or is it just a convenient way of uh, getting the results? Some individuals, we do need to do them uh, it, in certain cases. Like when we've got someone, you know, who's got a diabetic foot ulcer that's just not healing and we don't want them to have their foot amputated. Um, we have found that the, the intermittent fasting just, it's not getting, it's not enough in these cases. Um, so, but we're talking severe insulin resistance there. Uh, in the majority of cases though, uh, proper intermittent fasting, so, you know, as sorry, Mark Sisson says this, um, you know, and well, I'm sure he's not the first person, but on, on fasting days, so many people will test how much they can have um, and get by and still get some benefits, still see their sugars improve, still see their weight loss. Um, and so there's a carton of cream in their tea or coffee. <laughs> Does that per permit it? Um, but individuals who really stick to water, you know, maybe a, some, a cup of two of tea or, or black coffee and uh, they stick to their fast and on their eating days, they're really cutting it, they're refined and processed sugars and fats. They're not snacking. The majority of people can see like extreme results in six months, like, like I did. That was exactly what I did. Six months, no more diabetes, optimal A1C, no more fatty liver, no PCOS. And I, yes, I was young, but we see the same results in 
50, 60, 70 year olds, even with a longer history of disease. So it's, it's pretty radical, you know, what you can do in a short period of time in terms of regaining control of your health. Mm. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable. And uh, like, I don't know any like uh, this, any of the kind of pills or drugs that achieve that same result uh, that fast. Like usually people, if they start taking some uh, medication, then they're on it for like years and decades or like even for the rest of their life. So uh, yeah, it's kind of kind of amazing to see that uh, such a simple thing can actually be uh, very effective and you know, it doesn't take that long. It's really crazy. There's no medications out there. In, in terms of diabetic medications, there's some that make you mildly nauseated, so you don't want to eat. So things like Sixenda, I think they're just using that for weight loss now. Victoza, Zempic, that that's the intention. There's SGLT2 inhibitors, which cause you to urinate out sugar, um, which is good. You know, there's side effects of yeast infections, urinary tract infections for both men and women, uh, and then other side effects, but they still don't treat the root cause of the condition. So, I mean, you can take these medications uh, and get some mild benefit or see some mild fat loss but you're never gonna treat the root cause of the condition. And fasting actually treats the root cause of the condition, which is incredible. And it's just so amazing how quickly you can get control back of your health and get rid of chronic disease. I was talking to one of our first patients in our initial pilot of eight. I mean, he's been off insulin now for 10 years. This man was on insulin for 34 years prior to coming to us. And he cut out the ice cream and cut out the juice and doesn't snack and, you know, does 24 hours of fasting here and there. And he hasn't needed insulin in a decade. Uh, and he's in his 80s. Like, it's, you know, he's not 20 years old. Uh, you, you don't have to be 20 years old to get these type of health benefits. It's really awesome. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, we have a question from the chat that um, can like these plant oils have an effect on insulin resistance? And I would imagine the plant oils are, you know, the seed oils and uh, vegetable oils. So, yeah, yes. So the inflammatory um, seed and nut oils, that, that causes a tremendous amount of inflammation and leads to insulin resistance. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, then they also like damage the pancreas or, you know, <laughs> uh, pre so. pre prevent the uh, pancreas from producing uh, insulin and, uh, yeah, like the oxidative stress. Uh, also just uh, promotes the visceral fat so you're going to get both of both of the wor worst okay. uh, what would be like some alternatives uh, that you use yeah like real real animal fats beef tallow duck fat leaf lard um, are all great fats uh, coconut oil is a great fat to have um, avocado oil uh, olive oil um, and then just eating fattier uh, foods itself uh, is a good way to get some healthy fat in there. Hmm. Uh, is, it, is, is fasting harmful if uh, someone has or is under a metabolic acidosis? So you definitely do not want to fast while you're experiencing um, metabolic acidosis as it could make the metabolic acidosis worse. So it would be advisable to treat the metabolic acidosis. We've had a few patients um, come to us, unfortunately, after developing diabetic ketoacidosis um, from taking SGLT2 inhibitors, like Forstiga, Farsiga, Jardine, Simbucana, 
Um, and once their metabolic acidosis, once all of that's healed up, then we can start easing to um, different fasting protocols. But you should always be under medical supervision. Uh, you need to make sure that, that you wouldn't want to be doing longer fasts if you're type 1 diabetic um, or have uh, latent onset type 1 or LADA. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes it can be also the result of like dehydration or, um, you know, not, not drinking enough water. Yeah. Um, another question I like, if, if you're practicing alternative fasting, is it important to take time off to avoid a metabolic compensation? I have noticed slowdown at three months is common. It is important to take periods of time and eat more. We find it to be very advantageous to change things up, not just by fasting more, but eating more. Um, so alternate daily fasting, you can definitely hit sticky points down the road uh, where things seem to plateau and it is advisable to change things up. So I usually encourage people, like when you have a holiday, for example, whether it's you know, like we have uh, Easter coming up here or um, whether it's just a vacation, you know, to the Bahamas like, and enjoy it, change it up, eat, eat well, you know, avoid the process and junky fats and junky foods, um, stick to your, to your real diet, but embrace that period of, of eating more. And we'll often find that people will eat more for, for a week or two during these times. They don't necessarily see fat loss, but once they get back into their baseline fasting protocol, then they see quite a lot of fat loss in a short period of time. So those great advantage, like those great advantages of just taking that time eating uh more and changing things up for the system mm -hmm. yeah yeah like you shouldn't do any everything like um you know consider like like as long as it work if it's working then you can keep going but if it's not working then uh, you should change something and uh, yeah that's where that's where usually this metabolic adaptation tends to manifest itself that uh, something that you did so far was great but you know if it's not working anymore then uh, yeah like your body has gotten used to it or you just need a break to kind of like lower the stress or give your body some time to recover yes yeah just take take advantage of all of these events that come up in life as uh embrace them you know when i go on vacation uh, <laughs> which is rare um but hey it's it's a chance to eat eat more enjoy more food and it it's a great way to change change things up yeah um, we have a question like, um, why do healthy people still get benefits of autophagy? Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't it be totally sufficient to fast for maybe once a month if you're healthy? Yeah, you should absolutely um, practice some form of fasting if you're healthy to stay that way because autophagy has many anti-aging and disease-fighting properties. There's a physiological process where your body takes old and, and non-functioning or poorly functioning cells and breaks it down, puts together new and healthy ones. So that's great for disease prevention. I just wrapped up a five-day fast myself because I'm, I'm quite healthy now, mold toxicity, but otherwise healthy. Um, but just disease fighting, anti-aging, I want to um, be healthier at 78 than I was at 28 and, mm -hmm. and enjoy that time and not be plagued with, especially certain neurological conditions or, or uh, cancers. Like it's just a great way to help protect your body. Yeah, and uh, like generally, you would still need less of it, uh, less of the autophagy, less of the fasting if you're healthy. But like just keeping things uh, in check with a, like a regular 
uh, at least like a little bit longer fast can be a good way to like yes make it sure that it stays that way uh, because like the prevention yeah. is the best medicine and uh, yeah like you don't necessarily need to do it but again like um, uh, you, you can still reap some of the benefits or at least um, improve upon what you're doing a little bit yeah, I do these quarterly fasts uh, that are three to seven days, and I, I do them seasonally. So it's March, we're doing spring cleaning here in San Francisco, getting ready, putting out patio furniture, all of that jazz. So I mean, do the same thing for my own body, um, tidy myself up hormonally as well. Uh, you, there's travel, people travel, there's hidden seed oils, for example. You think you're ordering a steak, but they throw tons of vegetable oil on the grill. Um, there's all of this hidden inflammation. And so doing these periodic fasts definitely helps tidy that up. Um, helps too, if you travel a lot, this is a big reason why I wanted to do these quarterly fasts as it really helps with your circadian rhythm and just helping with the hormonal tidying that happens when you're jet lag. Like it was not uncommon for me before COVID to be in two or three countries on the same day, giving two or three lectures to doctors about how to implement fasting in their clinic or why fasting is helpful. Um, so it's, it just, it helps a lot. It sort of um, keep you, keep you healthy, lots of disease prevention on that front. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Like I also like, like it mostly when I'm like traveling uh, because you, you don't have to eat like the bad foods in the airport and uh, you also uh, yeah, help to, keep the circadian rhythms uh, aligned better and uh, more robust. Uh, uh, you, you, uh, you mentioned that the, uh, or like one of the questions was in the chat that, uh, is it possible to uh, counterbalance these uh, omega-6 uh, seed oils by eating more, let's say, of these omega-3s? Uh, or is it, is it that all of the omega-6s are bad and that you should avoid them all the time? Um, I, so... I think there's a difference between naturally occurring omega-6 fats and then like processed and refined omega-6 fats. So like nuts, for example, you'll find some unprocessed, you know, omega-6 fats in the actual like handful of nuts, like walnuts itself versus, you know, vegetable like or seed oils, um, which like, have you ever tried to squeeze a piece of corn? Um, and like measure the amount of oil that comes out versus squeezing like an olive and just the amount of oil that oozes out of that. There's a very big difference. So to make all of these vats of like this corn oil that we use here in North America on everything, like there's a tremendous amount of processing that goes into that. So there is a difference. Um, so do I get concerned about, you know, having that handful of walnuts at a mealtime where I'm eating like salmon or grass-fed beef with plenty of other omega-3 fats? I don't worry about the omega-6 fats and that handful of almonds. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's, it's good to have a, a more of a healthy ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 fats. Yeah, yeah, because like the omega sixes are still an essential fatty acid. Uh, you need them for a certain amount, and uh, it's not yeah, like the, the per se the omega sixes are bad. It's uh, the balance, but as well as the the kind of just the overall composition of it. So if the fat, even like the healthy omega threes, they can be harmful and damaging to your health if it's like oxidized and inflammatory. Yeah. So that is where this yeah food processing and uh, kind of manufacturing has done like a huge disservice to the people that you know they 
to get these you know highly rancid and oxidized fats that cause a lot of inflammation and oxidative stress in the human body as well when you consume them so yeah like even healthy like you can you can definitely make a healthy piece of like salmon very unhealthy if you like deep fry it in or in, uh, in like canola oil or just overheat it in general so kind of oxidize the fats themselves because like the all these uh, you know polyunsaturated fats are very uh, instable and very kind of uh, vulnerable yeah, that's a great point too. You, it's it's really about the quality, uh, the, the and the food quality um, to to be mindful of. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, are, are there like any uh, like uh, significant differences between uh, women and or are there like differences between uh, premenopausal women and uh, postmenopausal women for fasting? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> women today, I mean, we are so hormonally screwed up. Um, from a young age, like honestly, uh, 10, 15 years ago, um, I would have said it was much more difficult for a, a menopausal, postmenopausal woman to lose fat. Uh, a 25 year old who gained her freshman 15 at university could, you know, cut out some snacks, cut out some, some processed carbs, cut out the bread, uh, cut out the pizza and do some fasting and lose weight. Whereas the postmenopausal woman, like no snacking, um, you know, often has some food sensitivities that need to be identified, lots of underlying autoimmune, thyroid issues, like the whole gamut of things. Um, and due to just total, total deficiencies in estrogen and testosterone and imbalances of progesterone, like it, lots of fasting. Nowadays, unfortunately, like we're seeing women in their 20s that are perimenopausal all of the time. I mean, these are babies who, you know, came out of the womb with some degree of insulin resistance, who were um, uh, formula fed because like when I was born in the in the mid 80s, like breastfeeding was like not cool, you know, uh, in Canada or in the United States. So formula, all of this garbage, McDonald's is a safe food choice uh, and a healthy food choice for parents on the go. So we're seeing these young women with all this autoimmune, all these thyroid, all these like uh, HP axis dysfunction, um, like and, and totally perimenopausal by their hormonal profile. Um, so they're just as challenging uh, as that postmenopausal female. So, I mean, we have women coming to us in their mid-20s all the time that haven't had a normal menstrual cycle in like five years. And when they're teenagers, they don't care. They're not thinking about families. When they're 25, they care. They're thinking about families. And um, so with them, we still need to be a little bit aggressive, you know, really trying to get the nutrition right, really trying to do those longer intermittent fasts, the 36, 42s, 48s more often. Um, And then also addressing nutrient deficiencies um, is important as well, because we've actually seen them really be able to slow down fasting progress. And men seem to have a little bit more leeway with this than, than women. We've seen it be more of a roadblock in women so trying to identify these um, deficiencies, really trying to help heal gut health uh, as well, um, because people are struggling with fasting because of poor gut microbiome, poor gut health. So it takes, it takes more work for women in general, regardless of their age these days. Mm. 
Right. Um, yeah, like like I said, a lot of um, additional factors make it or make it harder, uh, like the environment and the kind of history, the, the health history of most people isn't <laughs> fully optimized, uh, to say the least. Uh, uh, but what about like these uh, different kinds of uh, xenoestrogens and things like uh, like can these um, like what what problem do you maybe may see um, in, in affecting people's health? Affecting their their health in terms of um, like hor like hormonal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah, like people because people are using let's say personal care products and uh, hygiene products and all these plastics and those things that you know have been shown to affect uh, people's uh, hormonal hormonal levels, like especially estrogen. So I'm <laughs> I'm not as familiar with this particular area of, um, when it comes to these toxins. And we do know that there's a high toxin overload, uh, and and that is often really problematic. There's a lot of um, a lot of mold toxicity too that individuals need to deal with uh, as well. So I do always recommend that someone works with a functional practitioner and does the organic acid mycotox GLP. Uh, LPOX texting, uh, just to make sure that those issues are being addressed as well. Hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, what about the elderly? Like, um, do they have to take anything, uh, do something differently? Oh, the elderly? Yeah, older people. Um, um, no, they, we, uh, we find that it's a lot easier to fast people actually as they get older because the appetite just isn't there anymore. Um, so we'll still, you know, we've had 90 some odd year old patients in our clinic and they'll still do 24, 36 or 42 hours of fasting. And they still on the same timelines get the same results as patients half their age do from, from fasting, but it's almost easier in those cases as well. The appetite just isn't there. Their body is slowing down um, because they are aging. So, you know, our body is trying to slow, slow down metabolically to help with longevity as we get older. So we find that a lot of these patients, well, they don't necessarily like eating very much or they don't like eating very often. They're already naturally doing more 16 or 18 hours of fasting. They're feeling a lot of pressure to eat more because they think that they need to eat to raise their blood sugar levels so they can take their medication to lower their blood sugar levels. So it's just totally perplexing um, that they get into that situation. Um, so it's very easy. Uh, we struggle with less issues with getting them to fast more consistently than say you, you would if, if you were a 44-year-old mother with um, you know, uh, you and your husband busy careers or you and your partner busy careers. Uh, you have children um, that are having all kinds of junk in the house. There's high stress all of the time. Um, that they tend to struggle a little bit more. There's lots of behavioral items that need to be addressed, lots of preparation that needs to happen in order for it to be successful. But at, at this particular age group, there's less of those concerns um and just the natural appetite is gone as well so you know still you know, three to six weeks off insulin um you know three to six months off oral medications blood pressure medications cholesterol medications mm -hmm. so they do very well right uh like I, I think a lot of some one thing a lot of people um especially who have like diabetes uh may, may experience or be worried about is that uh, like protein uh, protein is also 
can be converted into sugar and blood, blood, uh, you know, glucose, and uh, that can raise your blood, blood sugar levels. Uh, is it something that you uh, in your practice are like uh, aware of, or like are you worried about it, or do you like, tell people to pay attention to it, or or not? Well, we do um, notice that when people are very insulin resistant, so when I get that diabetic patient who's been on insulin, on insulin for 10 years and is taking like 100 units a day, they will notice like if they eat, a say, a 16 ounce steak, that for why is their blood sugar level high? And they come into the clinic and they say, but Megan, like I didn't have any potatoes. I didn't have any dessert. I didn't, I only drank water. Uh, I like, I added a wedge of lemon juice. Was it the lemon juice that made my blood sugar levels shoot up high? Um, you know, like I had, had broccoli uh, and I had, I had steak and that was all that I have. Was it the broccoli? Is the broccoli the devil? Now, of course there's, you know, you have to be mindful about the fats that you're having because uh, that can be problematic. But it's often even at home, you know, if they're making that. So we find that these extremely insulin resistant individuals do notice when they cut out the sugars and starches and they start eating more low carb or ketogenic, they do notice that they overindulge in certain types of protein that they do see that their blood sugar levels go up. But usually as they heal and develop insulin sensitivity again, those instances are not noticeable. So whereas at the start of my journey, for example, a 12 ounce steak would result in elevated blood glucose levels if just eaten on its own. Whereas I can definitely enjoy one nowadays and not see that reflected in my, my blood sugar levels. Um, so we are more cautious of it uh, with individuals uh, sort of at that earlier stage of healing. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I I think it is I think in a similar way that uh, yeah, if you're more sensitive to it uh, initially, then um, maybe slightly going on a, like a lower carb as also like a restricting protein a little bit uh, is the smarter approach. But in the long term, like um, being chronically low in protein is also not a good idea because of like you're losing muscle mass and becoming more frail. So yeah, it's a it's definitely like a generally even if you do see like a some rise in your in your blood sugar by eating more protein then uh, that can be, you know, actually uh, like a, in the net net positive thing is better because of, you know, like in the long term, you're going to be healthier by having, you know, the more muscle mass and uh, just uh, improve the body composition. And that what we find that happens a lot and more even sort of women um, in that sort of perimenopause, um, like menopause, postmenopause stage of our lives is that they'll get so healthy and then they feel like they've taken a thousand steps back all of a sudden. Severe brain fog, low energy, like crazy appetite. They've totally plateaued despite you know trying to change up fasting protocols or take periods of time and eating more. Um, in some cases, like hair loss uh, in men and women. And they're like, why? Like we just, we were feeling so good. Like we went from feeling terrible to feeling great to now feeling terrible and um like then that's when we would usually intervene and you know we'll try to do it beforehand but though that's a sign that there's just not adequate protein being had um so we do need more protein as we age women need more protein as we age too for all of our hormonal complexities so while it might, some individuals do benefit at the start because they do notice that response and we do encourage people to be mindful of it. Um, 
when they're starting out, but it's usually we, we need to actively increase the protein intake as people do get healthier. It's mm -hmm. important to remember that, um, you know, not that we have multiple personalities, but we have multiple metabolic versions of ourselves. <laughs> I'm sure yeah. a completely different person um, metabolically than I was a decade ago. Mm. And uh, I have been several iterations of Megan metabolically uh, throughout my healing journey. Mm -hmm. So the different Megans, we've needed different nutritional requirements to be optimal. Yeah. Um, so what works for you at the start, it's not going to work for you in the middle and is probably not going to work for you at the, at the end of your healing journey as well. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. And like your your metabolic profile can change even like uh, within days and like if you had a bad night's sleep then you are metabolically almost like a pre-diabetic and uh, yeah if you're let's say exercising then you are more metabolically flexible so yeah that kind of changes a lot quite rapidly yeah uh, well yeah it was uh, it's been great uh, talking with you so uh, before i ask my last question um, where can people uh, learn more about you and uh, where can they get your book or maybe join your practice yeah, so you can find um, all of our all of our stuff over at thefastingmethod.com. Um, there's tons of free blog posts, um, uh, blogs. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about fasting or our style of fasting, um, links to links to some books and uh, information about our program as well, and then all of our social media links where you can find myself and, and our program and, and Dr. Jason Funk. Awesome. We're well, going to put all the links in the show notes. And uh, my last question is, uh, what's this one piece of advice or habit you wish you had adopted sooner? Not snacking. <laughs> um, absolutely not snacking. If I had one wish for everybody, um, we went uh, we went snack, uh, especially nighttime snacking, because mm. that just that sleep is people talk about sleep being a pillar of health sure like i think it's a foundation of health mm -hmm. you can't build any pillars if you don't have a solid foundation and everything lies on sleep um so late night snacking like there's a thousand things that impact that but late night snacking it's it just snacking in general like has this far-reaching horrendous um uh side yeah. effect and um, for me, like I thought snacking was great and it was easy and it was convenient and mm. I could snack and I didn't have to learn how to cook meals. So I've, it's just much, that, that is the one thing I wish I never became a snacker because it's been a hard behavioral thing to, to try to manage over the last several years, but I've done it and it's reaped great benefits. So um, mm. yeah, I'm an anti-snacker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like I, it's funny because like I remember when I was a child that you know my parents and grandparents uh, they told me that like you know food is for like meal timing meal times like if you eat something then actually have an actual meal instead of like snacking one piece of chocolate or something like uh, eat uh, eat the actual food and uh, if you're hungry then you should just sit down and eat the meal <laughs> instead of snacking and it's funny like, like it's the kind of message that's been kind of shifted uh, over the you know past maybe like. 10 or 20 years that uh, in schools they started to emphasize more the snacking and that you should kind of have something small every once in a while all the time uh, to kind of keep your blood sugar up about the policy here like mm. um, in toronto when we left um you, you walk into school they're handing you toast and fruit cups like mm. and this is right after you were supposed to have breakfast at home like they're just chronically feeding children. My colleague Jason says uh, his sons play soccer or they 
played soccer uh, a few years ago. And he said like, every, like, there, like there's three sets of parents that have to bring snacks for like the different parts, like the, before they start playing in the middle of their game, when they take a break at the end of their game, like they're constantly feeding these children and then they go home and they get snacks before bed. Um, and it's just so wrong. Um, so, and I was kind of caught up in that, um, you know, oh, your child must always have food with them or you're a bad parent. So that was what my parents thought. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it really, um, it, it's just terrible. It's terrible here in North America, especially. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, hopefully we're going to get more people aware of this uh, message and uh, yeah, like going to give them more confidence in their metabolism and uh, body. Yes. All right. It was uh, good talking with you and uh, let's stay in touch. I'll see you around. All right. Thanks. Bye soon.